Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And today we are going to be interviewing Rick McKinney. Uh, He and his wife, Jane, are the authors of a book called And So We Walked. Now, that's an interesting title. What did they do? They walked across the entire United States of America um, to go speak. Spread the gospel, spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, it, it's kind of interesting how things unfold as they went. I think maybe their original plans weren't the end plans and, and, and maybe the, the conclusions they came to were a little different in the end than they had previously thought. There's gotta be a great story there. It's a cool story. So let's check that out. But first, we're going to go to a quick word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, everybody. We are uh, back. We're hanging out with Rick McKinney. How are you doing, Rick? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, Doing well. Doing well. It's cool to uh, have you here. Um, Just kind of got acquainted with you what, two weeks ago Yeah, uh, when we first started talking and uh, decided, thought this would be a cool idea for a podcast. Um, Rick and his wife, Jane, have uh, written a uh, a book about walking across the United States, right? Yes, that's um, right. Yeah. Do you want to, st- maybe we get started uh, before we get into that. Let's talk about who you are a little bit. Is that okay. fair? Okay. Sure. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm 67 years old. Um, I know I look about 30, but, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, 67 years old and I've been in ministry, uh, practically all my life. My dad was a pastor for 55 years. Uh, I surrendered to preach the gospel at 14. Uh, and because my dad was a pastor, uh, he started letting me to preach right away. So I I've literally been preaching for over 50 years. Um, most of that time I've spent in pastoral work. Um, and some of that time, seven years or so, we were in full-time evangelism, traveled all over the world. Uh, we've been to China three times, India for 10 days of crusades, Mexico twice, all 48 lower states. Um, so we've spent a lot of time in a lot of different kinds of churches and, uh, sharing the gospel with people. But my heartbeat is evangelism always has been. Um, and that really played into this walk across America because our desire was to share our faith with people on a very personal level and in a huge way that you can't do when you're just in a local place. So it enabled us to share the gospel with people all the way from Los Angeles, California to Washington, DC. Uh, and it was just 
an amazing experience. So that's a little bit about me. My wife uh, was also raised in a Christian home. Her father was a minister of music, and uh, she was raised in Oklahoma City. And so we both met at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, the second week of our freshman year, believe it or not. I was only 16. I went to school at 16, went to college at 16 years old, and I met her the second week. We fell in love. We've been together ever since. We've been married a little over 49 years now. So uh, it's uh, it's been quite an amazing thing. We do everything together, including walking across America. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we love being together. I, I always kid people and say that my wife always has walked a little faster than me. She's short. She's five <laughs> foot tall. So uh, her legs move a little faster than mine do. And so for almost 3,000 miles, my view never changed. It was always the same. <laughs> <laughs> Always yeah. the same because she was a few steps Left ahead of me. Dust, so. man. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, so can we maybe talk about what triggered this? What what kind of sparked this idea? Uh, I know you get into that a little bit. I'm gonna try and be careful in the way I ask questions too. Um, so if I if I start getting into something that's gonna ruin too much of the book or something, just <laughs> stop me. Um, yeah. and tell me to shut up and, and yeah. answer whatever you want. But uh, I'll, I'll kind of ask it in that way. I know you do get into that in the book, though. Yeah. Well, I'll just say this right up front that uh, for us, um, it has never been about selling books. Uh, we want people to read the story because we think the story is life changing. So I don't mind telling as much of the story as I need to tell uh, to get people interested uh, to get the book so they can read the story. I, I really believe I, I get emails most every day now uh, from people who have read the book and they say, this book has changed my life because I've made a deeper commitment to the Lord to do what he's called me to do than I've ever had before. So that that's really the goal. That's what we're after. So I don't mind sharing stories out of the book, uh, but it all started um, back in 2005, really. Uh, we were in full-time evangelism at the time. We were traveling around the country, and I was preaching a series of sermons called Reclaiming America. And I was preaching a different area each night in churches, reclaiming our families, reclaiming our churches, reclaiming our communities, reclaiming our country. And that's really where my heart was at that point. And I was studying one night, and I was reading Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, which was my text for the next night, which says, every place you put the sole of your foot, you can claim. And I was in a room by myself, and whether anybody else could have heard this voice or not, I have no clue, but I heard it. And the voice said, do you believe that? And I said, yeah, I believe that. It's in the Bible. And I actually turned around to see if somebody was in the room with me. It was that real to me. And um, I went back to my Bible, and I heard the voice again. Do you believe that? I said, yes. Yeah. So uh, God and I started having a conversation. I remember that story uh, in the Old Testament about Samuel uh, and Eli uh, told him after two or three times, hey, I think it might be the Lord talking to you. So I remembered that story. And so God and I started having this conversation. God said, do you believe the principle um, that every place you put the sole of your foot, you can claim? And I think about that for a minute, but I said, yeah, I think I believe that. And God said, what do you want to claim? And uh, I said, our country. He said, how much of it? And I said, all of it. He said, then put your soles, the soles of your feet down from one side to the other. And that's where it started. Took me a few weeks to get up the courage to tell my wife that's what I thought God was saying. But uh, we'd been together long enough by then that she knew if I said, this is what I think God's saying. I really believe that. And so we started preparing. We prepared for a whole year, uh, walked 1,500 miles the year before the walk across America. And then during the walk, we walked 2,770 miles in six months. So uh, that was the catalyst. That's that's where it started. Um, we thought the walk was about some things that we found out it really wasn't about. We thought we were going to change people as we walked. And what we found out was God was really asking us to walk so that we would be changed and we would be transformed. It changed us more than it changed anybody else. I, I have no doubt that it had effect on a lot of people. But the biggest effect was on us. I like that. Um, I really do. Uh, it would have been really easy for you to write a book uh, just saying, look at all the good we did. And like mm -hmm. that, uh, you guys, everywhere I've kind of thumbed through the book thus far, I, I, I'm, I keep being very glad at how humble you kept it and how you kept coming back to a gospel centric message. It would have been really easy to go 
uh, way off the rails and go uh, ultra political with it. And I, I didn't really see that either. I mean, it was about God. It was about God every right, step of right. the way. And I like that a lot. Yeah. A lot of people along the walk uh, assumed this was a political venture and it really never was. Um, uh, if it had any um, extra connotation to it, it was moral, uh, not political. Uh, we certainly were walking to share with people the message of Jesus. We really did feel as though our country had gotten um, very far away from God um, as evidence in a lot of the moral behavior that was happening and is happening in our in our world. But to us, that's not nearly as political as it is spiritual. Um, you know, politics are never going to change people's hearts. The only thing that can transform your heart is Jesus. And yeah. so that was the message of the walk. And, uh, I, I don't know about humility, but, um, <laughs> when you're walking 20 miles a day, six days a week, uh, it doesn't take very many days to realize that it's not you. Um, it's God. And there were lots and lots of obstacles, lots of physical things that happened along the way. Uh, that proved to us over and over again, this isn't you, this isn't your effort, this isn't your ability. My wife and I were not athletes by any stretch of the imagination, and we were over 50 years old when we started training. So um, it wasn't like this was something we could do in our own strength or our own power. We had to rely on God for every step, and especially as we moved into the walk and our bodies began to break down a bit. When you think about it, it's 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 like walking two-thirds of a marathon every day, day after day after day for six months. Now, people run marathons, but they don't generally run one again the next day and the next day and the next day. And so when you think about doing that, your body never has a a chance to recover. And that's one of the uh, biggest physical obstacles to doing a cross-country walk is you just never get any time off. Um, your shoes don't get to recover, which is why we wore out 20 pairs of shoes walking across America. Uh, people, People don't think about that either. When you, when you walk on shoes, uh, I lost two inches in height during the walk, uh, 5 million steps compressing your body weight down on your spine. And I actually lost, I gained a shoe size and lost two inches of height. My wife went from a size five, uh, shoe, which she wore all of her adult life after the walk, she wears six and a half and seven. So, uh, your feet, spread out your body changes there are just all kinds of things that happen to you and you just know and realize every day hey this isn't me this isn't us this is god and so i don't know if that's humility or just common sense but you you finally figure out that it's about god it's not about you tell us a little bit about the the physical aspect of the walk where did you start where did you go how did you plant each day Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's a big part of the story. Um, we knew for a year this was going to happen. And so we planned for an entire year. As I said, we started walking. We'd never walked before. We started walking a few miles each day and walked up to 10 miles, uh, in a single day, which was still only half of what we were going to have to walk each day. Um, but we were still in full-time ministry that whole year. So we just had to walk when we could. We started at Santa Monica Pier. Uh, in Los Angeles, California, at the end of Route 66. And we walked Route 66 uh, till the halfway point, which was Oklahoma City. Uh, from there, Route 66 goes to Chicago. We wanted to end up in Washington, D.C. So after the halfway point, we walked basically the I-40 corridor on two-lane highway uh, over to Bristol, Tennessee, and then up through Virginia and then over uh, to Washington, D.C., um, so that was the route we took. We actually drove the entire route the year before. Um, we camped each night because we were in full-time evangelism. We had a camper. And so uh, we had kind of mathematically figured it out that if we were going to walk 120 miles a week, uh, we needed to be camped in the middle of that 120 miles. Let's just say theoretically it was a 60 mile mark. We had volunteer drivers, most of whom we didn't know before the walk. Uh, who either drove to us, flew to us, or brought their own camper to where we were. Um, they heard about us on Moody Radio or on K-Love Radio, which promoted the walk for about three or four months before we started. Uh, newspaper articles and press releases, and they would call and say, what can we do to help? Well, could you come and be a driver? So the driver would 
uh, be there with us on Monday morning when we got ready to walk. They would drive us backwards 60 miles. We'd walk about 20 miles. We drove a stake in the ground with a blue flag on it that let us know exactly where we stopped. They'd pick us up. Uh, they'd stay within three or four miles of us all day. We had walkie-talkies. They had uh, medicine and change of shoes and socks and extra uh, rain gear if we needed it, all those kinds of things in our lunches. Uh, and then at the end of the day, when we'd walked the 20 miles, uh, they would pick us up, take us back to camp. The next morning, they would drive us backward 40 miles to where the stake was. We'd walk 20 miles, pick us up, take us back to camp. And then on Wednesday, we would start walking from camp out 20 miles, then come back. So after six days of walking, we would move the camper 120 miles down the road and do it all over again the next week. So logistically, theoretically, that's how it worked. It never worked out mileage-wise exactly that way, but um, that's what we had planned on. And um, Route 66 is only probably... Hmm, never figured out the percentage, but it's 60, 65% there now between Los Angeles and Oklahoma City. A lot of it's gone. A lot of it's been bulldozed under. Um, a lot of I-40 was paved right over top of 66. Uh, so we walked about 200 miles on interstate highway with special permission from the highway patrol. We walked about 200 miles on railroad tracks and about 200 miles in the desert. Uh, so uh, we walked in a variety of different uh, places and and uh, again, logistically, we had it pretty well planned out because we knew we had to do that to make it work. Um, but it, it worked. That part of it worked pretty smoothly. Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, you you talked a lot in the book uh, about encounters you had along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of those that stuck out to you? Oh, wow. There are just hundreds Uh an interesting thing about the book is the fact that my wife uh, did extensive journaling. We would never have been able to uh, put this book together had she not. Um, she kept two journals. One was a logistical journal. It had mile markers and landmarks. We knew that after the walk was over, there'd be some folks who doubted whether we really had taken every step across the country. So she took very meticulous records about we stopped here at this mile marker. We stopped at this restaurant. Um, this is how far we walked exactly. Uh, each day. And so we have all that documented. The other journal was a more personal journal about every person we met, every person's name we met across the country and what happened during those encounters. Um, so the book is full of hundreds of stories like that because uh, of her journaling. I would never have been able to remember. Uh, we started just a few months after the walk in 2006, writing the book. Um, and then we'd put it away for a while. <laughs> Interesting point. I actually started graduate school and went back to school at over 52 years old. And uh, the first paper I turned in, uh, my professor, Dan Francis, who was a writer himself, gave it back to me. And it looked like uh, a red paint can had exploded all over. (laughs) And he said, he said, guy, he said, you can't write. Um, he said, I'll teach you how to write if, if you want to learn. But he said, you can't write and you're never going to get your master's degree if you don't learn to write. So he did. He taught me how to write. And it was during that period I thought, you know, I can't write a book. Uh, I've written all this stuff down, but I don't think I can ever be a writer. And so uh, really for 17 years, we put the book away. Then we'd take it out and work on it a while. I finally worked on my doctorate. By the time I got done with my doctorate, I said, well, if I can write good enough to to get my dissertation done, maybe I can pull this book back out. So that was kind of the the process. But these stories that my wife uh, journaled for me and that and I turned into the book um, are just amazing. I mean, on the second day of the walk, I'll give you a real quick story here. Second day of the walk, we assumed, as most people do in America, that the Rose Bowl parade is always held on January first. So we had planned our route so that we would be walking through Pasadena, California, right down Colorado Boulevard, where the parade takes place on January 2nd. Well, what we didn't know that Californians know is that when January 1st falls on Sunday, the Rose Bowl parade parade happens on the next day, on the 2nd. So we turn the corner a few minutes after we start walking. We find ourselves right in the middle of the Rose Bowl parade. It's raining. Uh, here are the Disney floats are going by. The fireworks are going off. And uh, we're ecstatic because we're getting to see what we've been watching on TV all of our lives. And yet 
We also realize that we're in the middle of a hundred thousand people and it's going to take a long time to get through there. All the roads are blocked. So our drivers can't find us. It was a, it was a horrendous day, a very hard day. We both developed blisters because of the, uh, wet socks and wet shoes. And we got to the very end of the day that day. We were in Fontana, California. We'd finally gotten back with our driver. Uh, we were still wet and it stopped raining for just a few minutes. And uh, this guy approached us and called out to us from behind us. And we just kept walking because we just wanted to get done for the day. We'd been walking 21 miles and uh, we were soaking wet. We just wanted to get back to camp. And this guy called out to us again. He said, Hey, have you got a dollar? And, uh, we turned around. Guy was obviously homeless and obviously didn't want uh, a dollar for any good purposes. And so my wife asked him why I wanted a dollar. He says, I need to buy some milk. So uh, while I was kind of fidgeting around looking for a dollar bill to give this guy so we could get on our way, my wife started talking to him and uh, started talking to him about Jesus and whether he knew Jesus. And after a few minutes of this conversation, my wife just point blank asked this guy, do you know Jesus? And he thought for a moment and he said, no, but I sure would like to. And so right there on Route 66 in uh, California, uh, in this brief time that we had between rainstorms, uh, we led this guy to the Lord. And, uh, it was such an amazing experience because you could, you could literally see, um, his face changed, his, his expression changed. And so when we got done, we talked to him a little bit about, uh, did he know where a church was and could he go to the church and ask for some help and some spiritual help and get a Bible and, and start attending, tell him what he did and ask to be baptized and all those kinds of things that we knew we couldn't follow up on long-term, but we wanted to try to get as much of that information into him as we could. And when we were getting ready to say goodbye, I had the dollar in my hand that I'd finally fished out of my pocket. And I said, uh, Anthony was his name. I said, Anthony, here's the dollar. And he said, no, he says, I can't take it. I don't need that dollar. So when you see somebody's life change that quickly, it's just, it's an amazing thing because his heart had changed because his heart has changed. He couldn't take that dollar under false pretenses anymore. Um, and, and, and all across America, I mean, that was day number two. Um, all across America, we saw these, these extraordinary, uh, experiences that people had with God. God changed our heart. We walked through five Native American reservations. I, I think our experiences with Native Americans, and African Americans were the two greatest game changers for us personally. Uh, God just changed our heart. When we got to the first Native American reservation, uh, it was the Wallapai Reservation in Arizona. And uh, when we got to the sign that said, Welcome to the Wallapai Reservation, my wife and I knelt there at that sign and we prayed. We said, God, we're going through all these reservations. We want to be able to share the gospel with these people and you need to change our heart. Uh, we didn't necessarily participate in any wrong that was done to these folks, but we want to ask you to forgive our country for the wrong that was done to these folks. And we also want you to change our hearts so that when we see people, any unknown prejudice that we may have uh, will melt away so that we can have a clear path to share the gospel. And as we walked down the road, just a couple more miles, we rendered our first Native American after that happened. His name was Wallace Sinella. He was actually a Havasupai that they live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. They only get mail delivery by mule train or by helicopter. And uh, we had a long conversation with him. At the end of the conversation said, can you send us a Bible? Send me a Bible. He'd been kidnapped. We heard this story over and over. They A lot of the Native Americans have, are taken at age five or six um, to Nevada and kind of re-educated, reprogrammed. Uh, into a particular kind of uh, religion. And then they're brought back later. Their mouth, uh, their mouths are washed out with soap if they speak their native language instead of English, all kinds of horrible things. So as you're sharing the gospel with these folks, a lot of times what you find is you have this huge barrier. Uh, they have a barrier about Jesus because this stuff has been done to them in the name of God. And so at the end of this conversation, Wallace says, would you send me a Bible? So as soon as we got to civilization where we could do that, we sent it uh, to Wallace and uh, it took until we got home uh, several months later, because this was during the first month of the walk. Uh, we got a, a thank you note from Wallace and the postmark is a little mule train 
at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And uh, Wallace said, thank you. I got the Bible. I've been reading it. And uh, God's really changing my heart. I mean, it just, I could tell you a hundred stories like that. And, and so that keeps you going because physically you're worn out, physically exhausted, but you don't, you, you just, every morning you say, what is God going to do today? Who's God going to let us meet today? Uh, whose life is going to be transformed today? And that's what kept us going for six months. It wasn't our great physical stamina. It was, it was the spirit of God just saying, uh, if you'll go out and walk again today, I've got more adventure for you. I've got more people that need to hear about me. And that's what happened over and over. That was one of the quotes that, uh, Zach, uh, read to me about the way that, uh, uh, you were able to meet people who were significantly different from mm-hmm. you. So what has to change in your heart to be able to minister to someone like that who is so different from you? But here, here's the two things, the two prayers we pray that I think accomplish that. Cause it is to me a spiritual thing. It's not a, it's not a mental thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's a spiritual mm-hmm. thing. So the first prayer that we prayed before the walk began was Lord, would you give us the heart of Jesus? Uh, we want to have the heart of Jesus as we encounter people. But later, um, after these adventures started happening with the Native Americans, what we understood was that we needed not only the heart of Jesus, we also needed the eyes of Jesus. We needed to be able to see people the way he sees people. Well, I always tell people now, don't ever pray that prayer unless you want your life to be radically changed, because all of a sudden you can't look at people without your heart breaking. You, you can't look at people without your heart being tugged on. You, you can't see people that are disenfranchised, that are disadvantaged, that are disabled. You, you, you can't see people if you look at them through the eyes of Jesus and, and, and not be affected by them. Um, and, and that's why Jesus, you, you know, it's interesting to me that in Jesus ministry, um, he walked by the same people that the disciples had walked by all of their lives and never seen. When Jesus walks by them, he sees them blind, crippled, um, beggars, uh, adulteresses. And he sees them because he's looking at them through his eyes. Now, after Jesus ascends and the disciples carry on his ministry, what has happened? What's happened in their lives? All of a sudden, they're, feeling with the heart of Jesus and seeing with the eyes of Jesus because they begin to walk people by people. And all of a sudden they see them the same way Jesus did. So they go by just right off the bat and acts the gate beautiful and they see somebody. And instead of walking past this guy, like they had all their life, they stop and in the name of Jesus heal him. And so to me, that's, that was the key thing. You have to see people and that's not something you can muster up. That's not something you can accomplish by, changing your attitude. That's something that only God can do by recreating your heart and recreating your eyes to see the way he does and to feel the way he does. When you do that, man, it, it just, it transforms you. It changes you. It, it, it radically um, affects how you deal with people because you don't see them with the same prejudices. You don't see them with the same hatefulness. Um, you see them in a way that you've never seen them before. And, and that it's radical, but, but it's, it's, in my opinion, it's the only way to live. And ever since the walk, our lives have been so transformed and so changed. We've never been the same after the walk. And I don't think we ever will be the same um, because of what God did to our eyes and what he did to our heart. Excellent, man. Um, something I, I also noticed uh, throughout the book is you talk a lot about Jane. Um, she just seemed to serve as like, um, and I don't know, you, 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 you use her as an example a lot of, of kind of guiding you. Um, and I I think that's awesome, uh, that, that you kind of had each other to, to minister to along the way. Do you have, uh, any examples of, of how that worked out that you could talk with us about? Yeah, I, uh, I'm the first one to tell you that we would not have finished the walk. Um, had it not been for Jane, um, I, I tried my best, uh, to figure out ways to gracefully in the walk <laughs> several times <laughs> during the walk uh, and not really so much for me, but for her, um, 
my physical stuff was pretty minor compared to hers, except for one major uh, accident I had in Arkansas. But uh, other than that, my blisters went away after the first couple of weeks and, and, and I maintained pretty well until after that accident. But uh, she got blisters the second week and they never went away. Now we had never gotten blisters the year before when we walked, uh, but we got blisters. And so uh, her, her feet would hurt so bad. Her blisters were so painful that at night when we would lay down and she would just let the sheets touch her feet, she would cry. And many nights I said, honey, you don't have to do this. I can walk alone. You can drive the support vehicle. And uh, over and over, she said, uh, quitting is not an option. We made a commitment to the Lord. We're going to do this. Um, her boldness and witnessing outshined mine every single day. Um, I don't know anyone, I, I, male or female. I know no one who loves Jesus more purely and more wonderfully and more deeply than my wife does. Um, and that just showed through every single day of the walk. I mean, there were days when you think if you can't even stand sheets to touch your feet, how in the world are you going to put on shoes and socks and walk 20 miles? Um, and she did it every day. She walked every step. A lot of people say, did you tag team it? Did you walk 10? She walked 10. No, we walked every step, every mile all the way across the country. And she was such a strength. And she, God also used her to change my heart about her. I, I, I began to realize not too far into the walk, um, how far I had to come, um, to really get to the place as a husband that I should be. Um, you know, I think I was probably a typical husband. You let your wife do things for you that you probably could do yourself. Uh, and I had always allowed Jane to do that. I'd always allowed her not that I was a, you know, an ogre or a chauvinist, but you know, you just kind of let your wife minister to you. That's the model and the pattern I had with my parents. But when she was hurting so bad and she really couldn't do, uh, I began to do the laundry. I began to prepare the meals and I would pour the water in the basin every night for her to soak her feet in Epsom salts. And I began to serve her in a way that had never served her before. And I think that was part of that process of seeing her the way Jesus saw her. Um, and it, I don't know that I'd ever been to that point in my life before with my wife, but I learned to appreciate her spirituality and her commitment to the Lord in a, in a depth that I never had before. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, there were times I was afraid to, to witness the people on the walk. She never was. Um, there's a story in the book about two truck drivers that had been following us for days and they finally stopped one day, jumped out of the truck, wanted to know what we were doing because they were passing us every day. And, uh, uh, we started talking to them and <laughs> I kind of backed off and let my wife talk to them. One of them was a Christian. One of them wasn't. And my wife got right up in there their faces and shook their finger in their faces, especially the guy that was a Christian. She said, your buddy here that you work with every day is not a Christian. And you're supposed to be telling him about Jesus. <laughs> I would, I would just stand back and watch my wife do this. I mean, and they just hung their heads. Like their mother was scolding them. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. And she could get by with stuff like that where they would probably pump, punch me in the mouth. But um she was just so bold and so, and yet so loving and so kind and, and people just accepted her. So, uh, yeah, she was the star of the walk as besides Jesus. She was the star of the walk as far as I'm concerned. And, um, you know, it just, it was such an inspiration to see her. And when we go to churches and we talk about the walk, uh, I always encourage her to talk. She doesn't like cameras and microphones and all that sort of thing for podcasts, but I always encourage her, um, to tell some stories because, uh, she tells them in a way that I can't tell them. And, uh, the, the book is full of stories about Jane, probably more stories about Jane than me. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. You're a team, Absolutely right? That's it how is. it works. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, for our listeners talking about, I, I love that it, so much of this comes down to, um, you know, asking God to change our hearts and our minds and our preconceived notions about people and to give us Christ's eyes and, and Christ's heart. Um, you walked across the United States of America uh, yeah. to come to that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how would you tell the everyday listener right now, how, how do they need to start 
going about that in their daily life um, because not all of us are going to go walk across the That's United right. States. That's right. <laughs> so here's what I, here's what I said, would say to, to just everybody and anybody uh, start paying attention. Uh, when you walk across America, you are forced to pay attention to things that you have um, driven by for years and never seen. Uh, the best example I know of is those little white crosses uh, on the side of the road. When you drive by them at 60 miles an hour, you see them and you know they're there and you know what they represent. But you 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 go by in a second and you don't think about it. When you walk by those white crosses, you see them for half a mile before you get there. And when you get there, you can read the name and you see the little teddy bear that's strapped to the cross. And you realize that somebody lost a child in that spot and that they're dealing with the grief even today. And then you think about it for a half a mile or a mile down the road when you pass it. And so what I tell people is start paying attention. Stop allowing spiritually, allowing yourself to drive by places and not pay attention. When you see somebody, you aren't having that encounter by accident. Um, we prayed for a year that God would set up these divine appointments. And we saw uh, situations where just the the difference between a light changing red or green made a difference in who we met a half a block down the road. You think about taking 5 million steps, every step affects the next step. So if you are 10 steps off, you may miss somebody down the road. Now, that, I don't want that to sound too fatalistic, but but the truth is that we relied on God for these divine appointments, and we try to be very sensitive to every step that we took. So I tell people, pay attention. When you cross the street and you pass that person in the crosswalk, or when you are getting gas and there happens to be somebody across the pump from you or the cashier at the at the grocery store, don't just go through the motions and check out your groceries and go home. Uh, look at that person. Look at their face. Look at their their expression, look in their eyes. Um, I do this with waitresses all the time. My wife and I, every time we eat out, uh, when we encounter a waitress, we always tell her when she brings our food, Hey, listen, we're, we're getting ready to pray for our food. Is there anything we could pray with you about? And it's amazing. You, you, you don't think about it, but it's amazing how many of those waiters and waitresses will open up and tell you their life story, um, and tell you what's going on in their life. So pay attention. Those people that God brings into your, life and crosses your path. That's not an accident. Those are divine appointments that God has set up. And as you begin to interact with people in that way, God will change your heart and God will change your eyesight to see not a waitress, maybe that was five minutes later with your food than you wanted her to be, but a waitress who um, is a single mom who's trying to support three kids at home. Uh, her ex-husband or her boyfriend was abusive and uh, she doesn't have the money for rent and she's counting on those tips that she gets to to be able to support her family when when you see her in that way because you've prayed with her uh, it changes your heart and it change i always tell people it's really hard to be upset with people that you're praying for yeah um so pray for them uh i i we we all across america i can honestly say this with no exaggeration there was not a single person in the thousands of people that we talked to there was not a single person except for a couple of pastors. Uh, you have to read the book. Um, who, when we asked if we could pray for them, didn't allow us to do that. The only people who said no to us were pastors. We would knock on the doors of churches and say, Hey, this is what we're doing. We're, we're telling people about Jesus. We just wanted to stop and, and, and pronounce a blessing on you and your ministry and your church. Is there anything we could pray about? We had pastors who would just say, No, we don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> um wow. Wow. it's no it's no wonder jesus wanted to spend more time with sinners than he did with saints <laughs> um and so uh you know we we found out that that we were much better received by people on the streets than we were people in the pews uh there were some great churches who who were wonderfully supportive of the walk but there were some that were just plain rude so uh, if you stop and take a moment to observe the people that are around you in the situations and ask to pray for them. Each person you pray for will change your heart a little bit. I love that. I think that's awesome. Um, talking about like uh, on that note, on the, the note of paying more attention, um, I'm assuming, and, and I'll let you kind of open up on this and talk about this however you want, but um, 
you and your wife's relationship, the way you guys interact was probably a lot different when you're on the road walking than, than maybe how it had been previously. Right. And so my question is like, has that, has the walk changed the way you two spend time together now? Like I'm thinking about couples like me, me and my wife watch a lot of TV together. We'll sit and we'll, we'll zone out sometimes. And I mean, it, an hour can pass and you're like, what did we just do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but like when you're with somebody for that long, I mean, do you, do you, do you spend a lot of time talking? Do you spend a lot of time? Just- we probably, we probably spent, uh, as we were walking, we walked most days, eight to 10 hours. Um, if we were in cities, uh, around towns, going from town to town. So a lot of the places, especially when you're places like, uh, Arkansas, Tennessee, uh, there's a little town every four or five miles. So you're, you're constantly interacting with people and you have some in between city or in between town time, but a lot of time spent talking. But when we were isolated away from people, uh, which happened more in the West than in the East, obviously, uh, we probably spent 50% of our time praying together, uh, and 50% of our time just talking. Lots of times we were talking about, uh, spiritual lessons. Matter of fact, one of the next books is going to be called lessons from route 66. Uh, we also kept track of all the spiritual lessons that God taught us, the little devotional things. And so we would talk those things out. We saw two trains facing off and we saw bumps in the road. What, what can we learn spiritually from that? So we kind of gave each other Bible studies, uh, prayed together, prayed out loud together as we walked, uh, prayed for people. We had instances like, this is crazy. We were just outside of Nevada. We took a little detour up to Nevada because there were some bad roads through Oatman, Arizona. So we went up a little, made a little L shape that we didn't have to take, added a few miles, but we got to walk through another state. And so we were just outside of Nevada. We were walking on a sandy shoulder. We looked down, there's a, a golf ball and uh brand new and i pick it up and black magic marker writing on it says chuck i said well that's interesting so i stuck it in my pocket i picked up things all across america but one of the things we picked up we picked up 70 some dollars worth of change (laughs) and gave it to a ministry when we got to washington dc but um i picked up the golf ball so about i don't know a half a mile three quarters of a mile further on down another golf ball pick it up same black magic marker, same handwriting, Chuck. Over the next four or five miles, I picked up five golf balls, all the same magic marker, all the same handwriting. They all say Chuck. So my wife and I are walking, and at first we're talking, wonder what this golf ball means. And after about two or three, we said, you know what? Somebody named Chuck must need prayer. And so we started praying for Chuck. Very interesting. Several hundred miles later, we were in the Texas Panhandle walking, Going through a construction zone, we looked down in the bushes. There's a hard hat. And I reached down and picked up the hard hat. And on the hard hat across the front of it is written in black magic marker, Chuck, same handwriting. We get to uh, Elk City, uh, Oklahoma, and we round the corner in the downtown part. And there's one of those changeable signs with changeable letters. And all the letters have been scrambled except in the middle of the board. Chuck. So <laughs> all across America, we, we see Chuck. So what do we do? We pray for Chuck. And then we started noticing, uh, we had an encounter with a guy who drove a Werner truck. His name was Mike. So every time we saw a Werner truck, we'd say, pray for Mike. And so it became, uh, I hate to use the word game because it, it, it wasn't lighthearted in any way, but it became an adventure, really a spiritual adventure. We'd see a street sign. That was somebody's name and we'd start praying for somebody we knew by that name. And so we did spend an inordinate amount of time, uh, actually praying, uh, and talking about spiritual things. Yeah. There was some casual talk and some banter back and forth and, um, some singing. We did a lot of singing across America. My wife's a, we're both musicians, but she's a, she's the person whose love language is song. <laughs> if that's possible. And, uh, in the hardest time she would sing. Uh, I have to tell you this real quick, if we got a minute, but we were, uh, we were going out one, one day to walk on a Saturday morning and her feet were the worst that they'd been. We were going out to a very deserted part of route 66 and it had kind of degraded. And so it was more like walking on gravel than actually on pavement. They 
poured Route 66 in 12-foot sections of Portland cement um, with a little uh, spacer bar every 12 feet for an expansion joint. And over the years, that Portland cement has kind of degraded. And so a lot of places, it's gravelly. It's very painful to walk on if you have blisters. So every morning on the way out, my wife would sing worship songs. As the driver was driving out, she would sing worship songs. And so we were driving out that Saturday morning. I noticed she wasn't singing. And uh, so I turned over and, and looked at her. And she had her hands lifted to the Lord, and she was weeping. And um, I knew she was weeping because she didn't know how she was going to walk that day. And the first thing we did when the driver would get us to where we were going, we'd get out of the van and all of us, the driver, driver, sometimes it was a driver and his wife, the four of us would get in a circle and we'd pray for the day. And so we got in this little circle and we were praying. We got done praying. And uh, when we got done praying, my wife hadn't lifted her head or opened her eyes yet. She had been praying and she said, uh, Ricky, that's what she calls me. Uh, she said, Ricky, it's raining. And it wasn't raining. Um I, I still get a little emotional when I, when I talk about it because she was feeling the presence of God in such a dramatic way that it felt like raindrops. Um, this is what I mean when I say my wife is head and shoulders spiritual above me. Um, she sensed the presence of God in such a real way and she took off and walked all day that day. Um, and so time with God as you're walking thinking about his word, praying, encouraging one another. That's what we did all day. And we have said many times, we've never been as close to God as we were during those six months. You know, I, I think the more you depend on God, the closer you get to him. And um, for many years, we said we really need to go walk across America again so that we can get that close to God again. By the way, I wanted to walk the other direction from the tip of Texas to Canada. Uh but she vetoed that. <laughs> she, she said, she said, God didn't tell you that. And I'm not doing it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Do you have any questions or any? No, no. I've, I've asked the ones that uh, were really pressing on me. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm out of questions, but I would ask you, um, is there anything final that you would like to say to our listeners? Yeah, I just, I, I always encourage people to make a commitment to the Lord. And here's the commitment. It's a commitment my wife and I made a long, long time ago. And that is to make a commitment to the Lord to say yes to him before he asks the question. And most of us, when we have encounters with God, uh, when he asks us to do something, our, we may not say this to God, but our attitude is, let me think about that. You know, it's like when your wife says, will you do me a favor? And you say, what's the favor? Uh, you, that's the wrong answer, by the way, for you married folks. Uh, when your wife asks you if you'll do a favor, the answer is yes, not what's the favor. But if, if it's that way with our husbands or our wife, shouldn't it be that way with God? When, when God says, this is what I'd like you to do, we shouldn't say, what is it? So I can decide whether I want to do it or not. And so we made a decision that no matter what the question was, our answer would always be yes. And if you make that commitment, then you never have to worry about it. Here's what I think. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know that I have a lot of theological, biblical evidence for this, but I think I do when I think about the patriarchs, when I think about the men and women in the Bible. I think God is most apt to use the people who he knows beforehand, their answer will be yes. Um, and so God will ask the people that he knows are going to say yes to do the most amazing things. If he knows you don't have to think about it, you don't have to make your list with a legal pad with the pros and cons on either side. If he knows that you're just going to say yes, whatever he asks, I think he's, I think he tends to ask people like that to do the things that are most impactful for the kingdom of God. And that's my desire. I, I want to be that guy who God can count on to do whatever needs to be done, um, to make an impact in this world, a lasting impact for the kingdom of God without him ever having to wonder whether or not I'm going to say yes or no. Um, I've tried to live my whole life that way. Um, it's gotten me into some really odd predicaments, uh, some real, some places that I was extremely uncomfortable, uh, 10 days in India, longest 10 days of my life. But 
uh, this preacher wrote and said, would you come for 10 days? And we didn't have any money and no way to get there. And I had sworn off airplanes at that point in my life, but I said, God, I, I don't know how you're going to get me there. Maybe on a slow boat to India, but you said, go. And I said, yes. Uh, so I just encourage people make that commitment. And if you do, you'll see God do some things in your life that you've never seen before. I love it. I think that's great advice. And, and, you know, to, to your point, you know, whether or not God is more inclined to use those people or not, those are going to be the people that do it. Right. Yeah, that's right. So that's how we got to live. That's who we've got to be. We got to be the kind of people that say yes to God. Yeah. I I said for many months before the walk, I said, "I, I know we're not the first people God ever asked to walk across America to tell people about Jesus, but we may have been the first ones who said yes. Um, and so, um, I, I think that's, I think that's key for the way I live my life. And, and, and I think it's good advice. I think it's great. Hey man. Uh, thanks for being on here, Rick. Um, guys, it's, uh, the book is called, and so we walked and, uh, you should check it out. It's by Rick and Jane McKinney. And from the sound of it, you got some more coming out. Yeah. Uh, I'm, working right now on a couple. Actually, the first thing that will come out next is a children's version of this book. Uh, it's already written and it's with the illustrator right now. So it'll be a great way to uh, begin instilling in your children uh, obedience to God and what happens when when we are obedient to God, the way he blesses that. Uh, the next one that probably comes out is uh, Roads from Route 66. And I have another book uh, coming out after that about uh, uh, it's called Mem Meditations. I make new mems every day and put them on all the social media. And so I've saved those mems up. And so there'll be a mem for each day and a devotional that goes along with it. And then I'm also working on the story of my dad's life. He was born and raised in Harlan County, Kentucky, uh, coal mining country. Uh, his father was a bootlegger alcoholic. My dad was raised in a home where God was never mentioned, uh, except to take his name in vain. He didn't know anything about Jesus. And uh, one day some African-American folks across the railroad tracks asked my dad to go to church. He jumped in the back of the pickup truck with a truckload of black kids, went off to church and heard Jesus for the first time. And a few years later, accepted Christ as a savior and was a pastor for 55 years, an extraordinary life. So uh, that'll that'll be down the road, too. So I still have a lot of books in me and uh, a, a lot of living to do and a, a lot of ministry to do. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, man. Yeah. So guys, keep your eyes peeled for those. Uh, you know, in conclusion, say yes to God, be open, uh, to, to seeing through Christ's eyes, ask God to see through Christ's eyes, uh, and to, to feel with his heart, right? Yes. Um, Rick, thank you so much for being on here, man. We really appreciate well, thanks it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Have a good one, man. Looking for ways to stay positive? Brighten your day with the free story behind podcast. Hear weekly short stories that showcase true joy, love, and hope. Listen now at lifeaudio.com or by searching for Story Behind wherever you get your podcasts.